Life just gives me a perfect starting point for today's sermon. I don't know um, how many of you know this. If you're on my Facebook page, you probably saw it. Uh, but I was in a hospital on Thursday. I got admitted there Thursday morning. And this actually kind of does dovetail in nicely. And I want to start there because here's what happened. Everybody says, what happened? You know, well, weird things happened because what happened initially was I was just a little bit out of breath. You know, but then again, that happened after I walked my dog through the hills of Round Hill Park. You know, everybody gets out of breath walking those hills, not almost everybody. And um, had an elevator heart rate, same thing. You know, so at the time, I'm not too worried about it, but I've kind of been noticing a pattern. It seems a little worse than it usually is, you know, however you measure that. And then um, I also had this elevated heart rate that didn't seem to go down afterwards. And now I'm starting to get a little bit nervous. And the night before, this was Thursday morning, the night before, I'd actually had a situation where not only was I feeling the heartbeat, I also felt jittery and maybe a little dizzy. You start putting all those together, you get a little nervous. So I told Victoria, hey, don't panic or anything, but I think I'm going to go down to the UPMC Urgent Care and have them just look at me. She goes, well, I'm coming with you. And I said, well, I think you should stay here. I, it won't be a big deal. I'll be back. And she came um, because that's how those arguments always go. And uh, <laughs> so we went, to the, we went, and they started doing all my different things. Now, they... They checked my blood rate, which is my blood pressure is a little bit high. Uh, and, they, and the one thing, though, is they checked my oxygen level. You know, they put that little thing on your finger. And that was 98, which is really good. So that, that I was ready to go home at that point. Oh, good. I'm breathing. I can go home, you know. Uh, they said, well, let's, uh, let's do an EKG because you're starting to show some symptoms here. And I have a history in my family. My mother had an arrhythmia, and she had an AFib surgery. And she had to have that done. And my brother also had to have it. So, and my brother's older than I am, so he's three years ahead on this Grace Heart path. And so, uh, you know, they said, you know, considering your history and everything, we really need to have this looked at. Let's do an EKG. I said, oh, will that tell me? They said, no, the EKG will really tell us nothing. Oh, well, let's do that then, you know. Um, they said, it'll tell us if you're all messed up. And it won't tell us, if it says you're okay, it doesn't mean you're okay. I was like, well, that sounds like my life. Okay. So anyway, so they, they do that EKG and they come back out and they have this paper, you know, that the EKG does all these squiggles on. So, well, a little concerning here. And they point at it like I know what it says. And see, this is a little squiggle here. It's a little high. That's what we call an anomaly. There's two of them on here. And because of that, we think we want to send you um, to the hospital to have more tests done. Now, it's not so high that we're worried to send you an ambulance. Uh, it's okay if your wife drives you. I said, well, it's not okay by me. She doesn't have a license, uh, but i um, <laughs> glad you're okay with it. This is trying to kill me in the car. But um, so I drove. We went to UPMC East, and you know it's, you know, like walk in, and they triage you in the emergency room. You know, they're trying to see who's likely to die, and they get put in the, you know, urgent list. And I kind of felt bad because there were some kids there, little kids, and crying in pain. And I got triaged in front of them, you know, because I guess the kids crying isn't a big deal, but, you know, guys my age with heart problems are. And so they rushed me in. Now, by this time, you know, this is those of you who read my Facebook post, we had canceled Thursday night service. And I'm not going to make it back for that, you know. And uh, some of you sussed out something was going on, and they, they contacted my wife, who cannot keep secrets. And she goes, oh, yeah, he's in the hospital. I was like, but what did I tell you? I told you don't tell anybody. They are asking, you know. And so you all started praying. And so by the time I get to UPMC and they rush me in there to do the test there, everything's normal. They're like looking at me like, why are you here? Well, the bad news there is now I get triaged to the other side. I was like, we'll get your room and get your room. So I get to go back out there among the crying kids. And we sit for, I don't know, an hour or something until we get put in. And they're going to end up doing a lot of tests. The reason they were doing that, getting back to the sermon now, um, 
the reason they were doing that was that I had a series of symptoms that could have meant a lot of things, right? And it could be very, very serious, or it could not be serious at all. And just looking at the symptoms, they weren't sure. So what they wanted to try to do was get enough symptoms together that they could kind of try to look into the underlying cause. You know, that's kind of what medicine is, right? Because it could be a lot of things. It could be I was just simply having a bit of a reaction to this horrible pollen count we have going on right now in Pennsylvania, historically bad pollen. Could be that. You know, it could certainly be that. It could also be, you know, when you're talking about jitteries and heart rate, I could be getting ready to throw a blood clot, which could go straight to my brain and kill me. Could be that, you know. It could be nothing at all, because you know, if you think about it, elevated heart rate, uh, pulse increase, flushing, even slight dizziness, trouble breathing, actually describes an activity that I enjoy quite a bit that Victoria and I sometimes participate in, you know. Now, come on, I'm talking about going out and getting sushi. I do not know where your minds are this morning, but that too, you know, so there's these symptoms can mean a lot of things. It can mean nothing bad at all. It could mean something good. It could mean something deadly. And w- in order to look at the symptoms, we have to drill down deeper and we have to try to figure out what's the cause. And I think that's actually where we are with sin, because I think we spend an awful lot of time looking at what's really just the symptom of sin and not the cause. And the problem is if you treat the symptom, you can actually end up nurturing the cause. And that's one of the things that they don't want to do. They don't, well, we could bring your heart rate down, but if your heart rate's a symptom, it's telling us something. It's like pain. You know, pain's telling you something. Well, we can make the pain go away, but the underlying cause is still there, and we could actually end up making it a lot worse if we don't deal with it. So we need to get past the symptom down to the cause as soon as possible. And I think that kind of where we are today as American Christians, I can't speak to other countries, but American Christians is we're all focused on the symptoms of sin. And we're not really ever looking at the cause of sin. And because of that, it kind of grows up into this weird belief system that we have today. I meet some people who basically said, well, sin's kind of old school. That was my grandfather's church, talked about sin. We don't talk about sin anymore. It's, it's highly overrated. I, I talk to these people. It's really weird because they'll be telling me things. And I keep wondering in the back of my mind, why are we talking? You know, because what they're telling me is everything's fine. Everything's good. You know, basically, they're pretty good people. They kind of look at their life, and they're looking at the symptoms, and their symptoms aren't that bad. And they look at symptoms of other people, and they seem a lot worse. So they're really okay. And what they're trying to figure out is, uh, I'm kind of living my life this way, but if I ever need God, he's still there for me, right? You know? And uh, you know, I've been a pastor for a while now. When I first started out, I'd always like, try to be real gentle, and you know, I didn't want to hurt anybody's feelings. I'm well over that now. Uh, so now I'm just going to start telling them what I think. Oh, I wouldn't worry about that. You're not saved. Why would you call it to God? <laughs> Watch their reaction. What do you mean I'm not saved? Well, why would you be saved? You have nothing to be saved from. You've done nothing wrong in your life. It's, you're all okay. If you've done nothing that you need saved from, you don't need a Savior. What do you care? You know, and they say, well, you know, because what they're, what they're really trying to say is this whole Savior thing sounds a little bit desperate. You know, I need a Savior. That sounds a little desperate. Yeah, that's kind of where we're supposed to be, desperate. But we don't want to be desperate. We don't want to be cool about it. All right, I really don't need so much a Savior as a helper. I need a boost occasionally. You know, I have this problem of trying to get over my life. And after that, I am cool. Just help me over this one little tiny problem. And the reason they think they're okay is they look at their symptoms, and they're not as bad as other people's symptoms. So everything's fine. Then I see the other kind, you know. Uh, I see the other kind of people who just, they're, they're like so caught up in their sin and so focused on trying to stop the symptoms of their sin and so horribly, terribly failing at that that they're thinking, well, I'm just a wicked person. 
And I've actually had conversations where people say, Pastor, I'm probably not even saved. Damn, I'm probably not even a Christian. I just can't. I'm so wicked and evil. I can't stop doing this sin, you know? And what you have to understand is, is uh, you, can, you can hold back symptoms for a while. You can. And, and if that's all you're trying to do, you'll be successful for a little bit. But eventually, they'll come out. Uh, talking about symptoms, you know, I have this German Shepherd. Um, my German Shepherd breathes heavily a lot. He's a big doll, but he kind of pants... And my concern there is that can be a symptom of pain. And so I thought, well, I was getting ready to take him into the vet. I'd love to ask the vet, but of course, when he gets to the vet, he's anxious and agitated, and they pant, which is, you know. Uh, so I thought, oh, I got an idea. I'll take a video of him in normal state, and I'll show that to the vet, right? But I made the mistake of telling him, you know, you just keep doing what you're doing. I'm going to take a video of you. So I take a video of it. The darn dog held his breath. I mean, like... <laughs> Are you kidding me right now, right? But you can, you can manipulate your symptoms for a while. <laughs> oh, I'm not going to go to the vets. No, you know, hold his breath. You can do that, but eventually it comes out. It's just kind of playing you know, whack-a-mole with your symptoms, and eventually it comes out, and they say, you know, no matter what I try, I just can't beat the sin. And I think we have to go beyond the symptoms, and we have to start looking at the cause because the other thing that happens is people look at symptoms, and they look at God and say, God's not being fair. Because that person's symptoms seem worse than that person's symptoms, and you tell me that person's saved and that person isn't, and I don't see that. That doesn't seem like a fair, just God to me. And so what, what we need to understand is what the cause of sin is, and if we really fully get it, we'll understand why just one sin condemns you to hell. And it has to do with the cause of the sin, not the sin itself. We need to start dealing with the cause. The other good news is if we start focusing on the causes, some of your symptoms will go away. We can't just ignore symptoms, but if we deal with the cause, just dealing with the cause oftentimes gets a lot of our symptoms out of here. So let's go back to the beginning. What's the cause of sin? Well, we know where sin began, right? We know sin begins because we, we have this, this scripture that from, we all know from like Sunday school, uh, from the book of Genesis, that tells us where sin sorts, where, where it all begins. And I actually want to go back there because I believe that what we see in the account of Genesis is a breakdown of sin that gives us a better view of the cause of sin and kind of shows us where the symptoms and the cause separate. Now, there are two ways I believe we sin. One is we're actually falling into temptation. But let's be honest, not all of our sin is temptation-driven. A lot of it's driven by us. We just sin. We're actually looking for temptation, right? That's a little bit different. But I'm going to focus. I believe the, I believe the breakdown's the same no matter which way it goes, whether it's a tempter involved or you're just living for yourself. I think it's the same breakdown. And so I want to take a look at this one that starts with temptation. Uh, and, I, and the reason I want to look at it in Genesis is because this is the very first time this happens. And I'm saying that for two reasons. First of all, I think we need to give the, the one person a little bit of grace here that suddenly doesn't get grace, and that's her name's Eve. A lot of preachers love to talk about Eve, like, you know, she's the cause of all our problems, that rotten scoundrel. You know, I think we need to give Eve some grace. No one had ever seen temptation before. This was a new thing, you know? I think we need to give her a little bit of grace that she wasn't ready to handle it right um, a little bit. Uh, the other thing is, I think we see the devil's pretty bad at it here. Seriously, we're going to take a look at it. He's a little bit clunky and klutzy in his temptation here, if you look at it. He's better today. And I warn you, he's better today. The temptation gets much better. And I say the devil. Uh, the devil was actually, you know, the Satan was involved in the temptation of Eve. For us, probably not. Uh, I, I get a kick out of people who tell me, you know, the devil did this to me. No, he didn't. <laughs> Probably didn't even know your name. I mean, the devil's not God. He can't be everywhere. 
right? There is one person, the devil. He can't be everywhere at once. And so he kind of prioritizes his time. Yes, the devil tempted Eve. Yes, the devil tempted Satan. Yes, the devil tempted Peter. I don't think the devil's ever got involved in Mark Rice's life. He sends a minion for me. You know, I'm just not that high up the food chain. But, you know, the devil, demons, whatever. The temptation, the point is they've been at it a long time. And they're very, very good at it. And, and it is warfare, right? We talk about spiritual warfare. And so I, I like to relate it to the only warfare I know, which is fencing, which I know some of you don't consider real warfare, but is it's the sport I was involved in for many, many years. When they teach you how to fence, which is sword fighting, they teach you different movements we call actions. And you have these individual actions that you sit there and practice and practice and practice, right? And so you kind of get good at these movements and these actions. And then you go fence somebody who really knows what they're doing. And you're a beginner. And you think you got it because you've memorized these actions. You've got them down pat. And you stand up against this person and like they say, fence and bam, it's like over that fast. You know, what happened? He didn't do anything I was taught. He did everything you were taught. He just compressed it down into one action. He's so good at what he's doing that he was actually able to do all these movements like fluidly, one right after the other. That's where demons and devil is today. But we're going to see he's a little bit clunky still in this, in this verse. And I think that's good for us because it helps us see what happens. So let's go ahead and let's take a look at the very beginning here. Uh, this is the setup to it all. This happens before Eve is even born. Um, the Lord God takes the man and puts him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. I want you to note he had, he had responsibility. Both he and Eve would have that responsibility. They're the caretakers of the garden. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree in the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree... Of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. I'm actually a big fan of this verse. I've been here many, many times preaching. But what happens next? Well, what happens next is somewhat predictable. Mark Twain puts it this way. Uh, he says, Adam was human. This explains it all. He didn't want the apple for the apple's sake. He wanted it only because it was forbidden. The mistake was not forbidden the serpent, then he would have eaten the serpent. Right? So he basically, Mark Twain is a bit of a cynic. But this actually shows one thing that I think is incorrect, and that's we believe that the fruit we're talking about is the apple. That's always how it shows up in the posters and things. But actually, I don't believe it is. And the reason I don't believe it is, is for one thing, the Bible only says fruit, never says apple. For another thing, uh, I believe that this fruit was distinctive in its look. When Adam ate it, he knew what he was eating. If, uh, if it had been an apple, he might have later said, well, I didn't know that was the apple, God. I, you know, I thought that was just an apple. I thought it was a gala. I didn't know it was this. And, and he doesn't even go there. So I, I believe that the fruit was distinctive. We've just never probably seen it. So now let's break it down. So Satan will enter the serpent. Most theologians, theologians believe the story's told like the serpent does this, but most people believe that Satan himself has become a serpent or entered in the serpent, and he's going to tempt Eve and he needs to do this. He wants to pull the creation away from the creator. Um, and we actually going to get into this in a couple sermons from now, the purpose of the devil, why he's doing all this. But for right now, just know that he is the adversary and this is what he wants to do. Step one in the breakdown of sin is always the same thing. You need to question the character of God. If you know who God is and you really know who God is, there can be no temptation. If you know God is good, if you know he loves you, you know he's moral, you know he's just, you know he's wise, how could you ever disobey him? It'd be impossible. The first thing they have that he has to do, whether it's just you do it to yourself or whether the tempter's doing it to you, is move your opinion of the character of God. Got to push you off of that a little bit because we have to start 
bringing God's character into question. And here's how he does. Now, the serpent was crafty and wise, and the wise is the beast of the field. And he says to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree in the garden? Okay, this is a complete and total lie. It's even a weird lie. It doesn't even make sense. He's saying, is it really true that God told you you can't have any of the fruit you see? None of it? Really? None of it? Okay, well, of course that's not true. What's he trying to do? He's trying to bring in the idea that God may not really have our best interests in mind here. You know, why would he give you all this fruit and not let you have any of it, see? And we start debating, well, I don't know why God would, no. What? And we start thinking about God, and we start thinking about his character, and we can start maybe being pushed off this idea that God is good. In fact, he's kind of like saying, you know, God really limits you unfairly, doesn't he? In fact, he won't let you eat any fruit here at all. That's kind of unfair. Ever fear like, ever, have you ever felt like God has limited you unfairly? Have you ever felt that temptation, right? We have. I mean, it's like, God, why am I not allowed to do this? Everybody else is allowed to do it. Why am I not allowed to do it? God's limiting you. That's why. And that's not really fair. Does that person really love you? Right? We're trying to, we're trying to kind of impugn the character of God. Now, Eve has no idea what's going on. We have, we have the, the benefit of looking at, you know, thousands of years of history, and, and we kind of can see this. So give Eve a little bit of a, a break here. But, but we need to know that you can never question the character of God. This is the first step to sin. And if you find yourself questioning the character of God, you understand that thought's not coming from God. That's not coming from you. You are feeling temptation because that, the tempter is trying to get you off of knowing who God is. Here's why there's no way you can ever question the character of God. The character of God is the basis upon everything. If God isn't good, we don't know what good is. If God isn't just, we don't know what just is. If God doesn't love us, we don't have any idea who does, right? Once you start questioning, it's like questioning the gold standard. And some of you are too young to remember the gold standard. But we used to be on the gold standard. That meant that our dollar, if you had a paper dollar, somewhere there was a gold dollar in Fort Knox that, that represented that, right? It was a gold standard. We were taken off of that, I think, in the 70s, if I remember right. Let me put this in the terms of a poker game. Those of you who are sinful, like me, who <coughs> maybe play poker, uh, those of you who aren't, just, you know, take a moment while the sinful people talk. Okay, so if you've ever gone to a poker game, like a you know, Friday night poker game with the guys, uh, and or maybe you women do poker games, I don't know, but you, what happens is you get always have a buy-in, right? You go and you give them 20 bucks or whatever, and you get whatever the chips are, toothpicks or whatever they are, and you're going to play just for the night, it's just a lot of fun, and you play poker. At the end of the night or when you're done, you cash out, and then however many chips you have, that's how much money you, you, know, you get back. So you give 20 bucks, let's say you get 20 chips. So suppose you play for a couple hours, and you're tired, you're going to go home. Hey, I have 40 chips. I had a good night here. Uh, cash me out. The guy says, I'll give you a check. He writes you a check for $10. Here you go. What's this? He says, that's, your, that's, that, that's what that's worth. How is it worth that? I gave you $20. Yes, but I changed it into yen. And then I gave it to another guy who deposited, and they changed it into pesos. And wouldn't you know it, while we've been playing, the pesos, value of the pesos, took a dive. So this is, what your, this is what your chips are worth now, right? No one would accept that because you've changed the basis. You can't. God is your basis. He, he, he is the, the standard that we base everything upon. And so he is the standard of all things true, all things just, everything's right. So when we start questioning the character of God, then everything's in question. And boy, if that doesn't describe the world today, I don't know what is. But so uh, what happens is now the woman's going to try to educate him. 
You know, this is a futile attempt. The only thing more futile than Eve trying to educate um, Satan is some of you trying to educate your friends on Facebook. Just give up on that, okay? It's not going to work. It's about the same. Okay, so the woman says to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, silly. Of course we can do that. It's just not that one fruit on the tree which is in the middle of the garden. Now, what Eve could have said was, no, you're absolutely wrong. We can eat the fruit and been done with it. But she brings this up. Yeah, he doesn't limit everything, but he is limiting us there. He's told us there that we can't eat that fruit. So she's kind of buying into this a little bit, right? The movement now has happened. God's character is not pure, just, just loves you no matter what. We're starting to debate this idea that maybe God is limiting us, and it's now open for the conversation. Satan has not another move if he doesn't get you to move off of the first one, right? And naturally, what they do next is we have 3,000 variations of fruit we're allowed to eat. Uh, there's one we're not. Let's talk about that one. <laughs> let's not talk about those 3,000. They're fine. No, let's focus on the one thing we just can't do because that's what we're going to do. So we're going to go in there. Why do you suppose that is? Well, because God loves you. Is that why? You know, is that why? Or, or maybe there's another. No, why is that? I don't know. Here's what God said. She tells him. She said, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. It's interesting, by the way, she added something there, didn't she? We've actually changed the word of God now because God clearly said you can't eat it. She's saying, well, actually, he said we can't eat. We can't even touch it. Now, I don't know if that's just Eve adding something or if maybe Adam was just trying to really emphasize, don't even touch it. Don't even look at it. You know, we stay away from this stuff. Uh, I don't know. But she's actually like, uh, not even allowed to touch it. Apparently, touching's a thing. I can't even touch it, you know? And so that tells me that this does bother her. She's actually added something to God's commandment. So now we get to the next step. First step, question the character of God. Second step is question the Word of God. Now, Satan's going to be clunky here, I think. I, don't, I, I think they're better now. The demons are better now. I'll, I'll tell you what the demons would do today because we're a little bit wiser. You know, we know what temptation is. Eve didn't. So he goes flat out into it. So that's a lie. If you eat the fruit of the tree, you're not going to die. God's lying to you. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like him. You'll know good and evil. You'll be like God. He's trying to keep you from becoming like him. That's the truth. He just called God a liar. Well, you can't even get there if you know God's true and can't lie. That's why he has to move you off his character first. No, 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 no. I'm telling you. I don't know who this pipsqueak is anyway. He's just some snake, right? <laughs> There's God who created the heavens and the earth. We're going to listen to the snake. That makes a lot of sense. But he's planting the seed that you could be like God. Now, we look at that as this evil, wicked thing. But what about if he portrayed it as a good thing? Wouldn't it be better if you could do the God stuff without needing him around? Think of all the stuff God has to come and do. What if you could do that? You know, maybe it's not so bad if you were like God. Maybe, you know, but don't give it to Adam. You know, we can't trust him with this. But, you know, you, Eve... I can tell. You're the kind of person who can have this. Now, today, by the way, I don't think the devil would ever go straight at it like that. He won't just go and say God's a liar. He has ways of getting there suddenly now. Now it would be something like, oh, yeah, but he said that at the beginning of the world, right? It's kind of changed by now, don't you think? Maybe that was just then, not now. Or else he'll say, well, did you hear God say that? Well, no, Adam told me. Well, maybe Adam's got it wrong. Have you ever thought of that? See, this is, this is how God questions it now. Uh, did you hear God say that of yourself? No. Oh, maybe it's wrong. What's well, in the Bible? Maybe it's mistranslated. You know, so there are always these, these things that, that the devil always always trying to do, but it comes back to the same thing. He's trying to question the Word of God because if you believe the Word of God and you believe the Word of God is true, he can't get to the next step. 
So again, he's got to move you off the character first, and then he's got to question the word of the Lord. And, and, and we see this going on all the time in today's society. We just keep abstracting it away and away and away from God until it's just some kind of a general idea. And boy, we can talk about that all day long. Now, the third step is unclear in the Bible whether it is done in, in view of the serpent or not. It almost feels like this happens later, and it almost feels like it happens with Adam there. I'm going to show you what happens. But the third step is always the same. And this one, you know, is if, if, we, if we've really sunk into the first two, this next one, we say, well, let's just go ahead and take a look at it through human eyes. I'll take a look at that. I, I'm pretty smart. You know, I take care of the garden. If, if there is a poisonous tree in the middle of the garden, do you don't think I would know it to look at it? I would be able to look at it and tell whether this is right or wrong. So with human eyes and human understanding, let's go take a look at it. You know, I'm going to go take a look at this, and I'm going to figure it out on my own. I don't know if I can trust God, his character. I don't know if I can trust his word. I'm going to figure it out on my own. I'm going to put myself in the situation. I'm going to look at it, and I'm going to make that decision. So when the women saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave it to her husband with her, and he ate. Almost seems like they went there together. Let's go take a look at it. Looks okay to me. I don't see any poison. In fact, that fruit looks pretty amazing. I'm going to pick it and eat it, and you can do it too, right? So here we have, this is the entire cycle, the very first sin that happens in the world. My question is, where's the sin happen? These are the steps. Where's the sin? Because it kind of goes like this, right? Talking to the devil, so I've heard pre- sermons on that. Don't even talk to the devil. Don't even let him in. Don't even, you know, guard your, guard your mind. Guard your mind. You need to guard your mind. But is that where the sin began? Did she sin then? Couldn't be, right? Because God doesn't get upset until after it's all over. So just talking, apparently, wasn't it? How about when she went to look at the fruit? Well, God didn't complain about that. He didn't say, you know, I'll look at the fruit. How about when she touched it and picked the fruit? Was that sin? Well, according to God's commandment, you can't eat it. So according to God's command, they'd look at, oh, we're nuts. What are we doing? Throwing it down, stomped on it, and didn't eat it? That wouldn't be sin. What about eating it? Eating the fruit? So at what point in there do we look at the symptom and say, well, that's the sin. That's it right there. And I'm saying none of them. None of them. These are all symptoms of the sin. The sins happen in the heart. Somewhere in there, I don't even know where. Somewhere in there, they have determined in their heart they're going to do this. And the rest of it's just details. Because I was mentioning this last night, this occurred to me. Um, last year, my wife, the woman that God gave me, went out in our garden and saw that our tomatoes were growing nicely, and they looked good. And she picked two of them, and she brought them to me, her husband, and said, here, eat this. And I did, right? Was that sinful? No, because it's tomato, which is, you know, fruit and a vegetable both. But, you know, it's, it's, that's not sinful, Right? The act of looking at, picking, and eating fruit can't be sinful, and this is where we get wrapped around our own little imagination. Well, if that act's not wrong, well, we can apply it to another act, right? And this is what, this is what happens. This is what happens in the discussion of a lot of things. This is the discussion that I get into. Yeah, every, every couple we've married, except my kids, um, every, every couple we've married was living together already before we met them, right? And uh, so we would always have conversations, and we always start the same way. I said, do you understand that according to statistics, you have a 50-50 chance of 
your marriage making it, unless you live together, then you have a one in four chance. You've actually decreased your chances now. That's it's, a Psychology Today article in New York Times, not any kind of a Christian organization. That's the, t- the statistics. And that doesn't even count all the people who break up before they get married. And so, uh, you know, that's where we start. And well, you know, we understand but we're in love, right? So we say, well, that's okay. You know, or when I say we, I mean, that's, that's the thinking because the symptom's the same as you. You know, you're married to Victoria. You love each other. You live together. That's the same symptom. How's it wrong for you and not for me? piece of paper? Does that change it? You see, this is how we abstract everything. But what we're forgetting is the heart. Where's the heart? Where is the heart in all this? Because that's what Jesus tells us is the problem. In fact, we had this scripture last week, but it applies this week too. The things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. Those defile the man, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, theft, false witness, slanders. These are the things which will defile you. It's coming from your heart. Somewhere in that whole process, Eve's heart changed. And when she, when, she, when she let her heart change, the rest of it was just details. She was bound to sin because now she's just figuring out how to sin. Her heart changed somewhere in there. I don't know where, but somewhere in there, uh, her heart changed. And the question always for God is, who owns your heart? That's what, that's what all this is about. When God is trying to bring us to him and, and, and just kind of save us, it's always that question. Who owns your heart? He gives us a commandment. It's the same commandment here. The Lord spoke, says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of bondage, out of the house of slavery. You will have no other God before me. That includes you. Who owns your heart? Another God or yourself? Or the God who saved you? That's the question. That's, by the way, why I'm always so nervous about the word of faith teaching. Because the word of faith teaching doesn't seem to care about God's heart at all. You know, if I just have the right way of doing this, if I have my mind set right with no doubt, or if I can visualize this clearly, I will make this miracle happen. I don't care what God wants. That's the word of faith teaching, folks. If you visualize this, it will happen. You will make it happen. It is the very same thing that Satan's saying to Eve. Do you not know that in that moment you'll be like God? God's heart doesn't matter. Your heart's all that matters. You've determined you know best. You've determined the character of God doesn't matter. Uh Uh-uh. You know best, and you're going to make this decision of who gets the healing, or you're going to make the decision of who gets the Lamborghini or the big house or the new job or whatever decision you're making. I'm making that decision, and because I can visualize it and because I can can believe it with faith and no doubt, it must happen. I'm going to bring this in about. This is simply saying you are God. It's not about God's heart anymore. It's all about your heart. Eve's response basically says this. God's character doesn't matter. His word's a little bit unreliable, let's be honest. I need to do what's best for me. And I really don't care what that means to my relationship with God. I don't care. At that moment, I just don't care. I'll just ask God, forgive me later. Have you ever had somebody come to your house who was a horrible guest? Just as, I don't know, as a relative, you know, some of you parents had your, your son bring home a new girlfriend that you couldn't stand or the, your daughter bring home a boyfriend you can't, can't handle, right? And it's like, they're in your house, you're having dinner, they're eating your food, 
and they're just so ungrateful for all of it. Some of you are nodding your heads, like you know the person I'm talking about, right? <clears throat> and it's like, I, I can't stand that person. And it's like, some of you, oh, God bless you. You have to put up with them every year at a holiday or something. Oh, boy, so-and-so's coming over again. I got to deal with them again. If I can just somehow keep my temper without blowing up. Because they're going to sit there. They're going to eat your food. You're going to be hospitable through gritted teeth. And they're going to sit there and tell you what they think about things, right? They don't care. They don't care at all. You know, you just have this guy just like won't, just, you want him out so bad, but you have to be a polite guest, uh, host. And then when they finally leave, you know, the door shuts behind him and you look at your wife or your husband, you go, oh, thank God they're gone. You know, you know who I'm talking about, right? That's because they don't care about you, your hospitality, what you've done for them or anything. It's, it's like the nerve of some people, you know, to sit there at my meal and complain about the food that I'm providing. The nerve of some people, right? And yet, this is how we treat God so much. And we actually think God should let us into heaven like that. My heart's not tuned to God. I've already declared the fact that I will do what I think's best. When I agree with God, okay. But when I don't agree with God, I'll go my own way. It's like C.S. Lewis said about his dog once. My dog is not at all obedient, but occasionally he agrees with me. <laughs> I think that's kind of how we are with God. We're not really obedient, but occasionally we agree with God. And maybe we think that as a Christian, we need to get, agree with them more. But if our heart is still tuned to do what we want to do, it doesn't matter what the sin is. It really doesn't. Because our heart is set up to a place where we don't, we don't care. And then we just complain about it. We complain about all the things we have to do as a Christian. Oh, it would be so much easier to not be a Christian. I could get revenge right now. You know? But... What Jesus says is this, because if you ever wonder, like, man, I'm having a really hard time with this whole Christianity thing, and you know, I, I just struggle with this sin in my life, and I keep coming back again and again to it. Jesus says something interesting. He says, you know what? If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Notice, he doesn't say, keep my commandments that shows me you love me, which is how we kind of view it, try and control our symptoms. He says, no, it's the cause. If you love me, You'll keep my commandments. Of course you will, because you'll know his character, and you'll believe his word, and it won't be hard for you to do this. It's the cause that's the problem. It's not the symptoms. We're focused on the commandment part. And he says, no, you just need to love me. Focus on that part. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If we're not keeping his commandments. What does it tell us about where our heart is? It always comes back to the heart with God. And this is the problem with the sin. And this is why one sin that you have your heart turned to yourself. I don't care how many times you sin. Why is God letting that person live with him forever? Could you imagine this person living with you forever? Imagine that person from, you know, just like always there, never goes, always there. Why in the world would God let this person who has their heart totally selfishly on their own? Why would, why would he want to be with them forever? It always comes back to the heart. It's real simple, Jesus says. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Would you all please pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you.